It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Okay, do you guys want another breaking news on Tom Brady and Giselle's divorce? Sorry, I don't have it. I got nothing on that. But I do have, sorry, I do have something I personally find way more interesting than yet another celeb breakup. The story behind what Giselle chose to wear on the very day she knew she'd be photographed and seen by arguably the biggest audience in her entire history as a model. Super Bowl 49, when Tom led the New England Patriots to victory over the Seattle Seahawks. So with like a million cameras snapping and rolling, she runs on the field wearing a superbly chic, totally flattering red and blue plaid shirt. No, no, but not the basic sort of flannel shirt look. It's more like Hollywood meets Cattle Ranch. I mean, something you'd see the barrel racer girl sporting on the set of Yellowstone. I know. Okay, we get it, Liz. Giselle's top triggered a mass hunt by viewers for that shirt. Who made it? Would you believe the company behind it, Rails, was started by a guy with no fashion industry background at all who launched it in his apartment with just $5,000 behind it. Today, everyone from Beyonce to Kate Moss to Cindy Crawford to Kendall Jenner, they sport the Rails brand. So easy, right, to build that? Not in the least. In fact, when Jeff Abrams got one of his first big orders for shirts from Anthropology, a disaster hit the company so bad it nearly went out of business. What a story of resilience you are about to hear. Let's welcome Jeff Abrams, founder and CEO of clothing line Rails. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Thank you so much for that great introduction. <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, I remember when Giselle ran out onto the field. I mean, she was carrying her son on her back at one point, and I thought, you know, when I do that, I look like such a bum. But she rocked that shirt. What was that moment like for you? Yeah, so that was in sort of the early stage of our evolution. And we had, you know, we had just sort of gotten into the shirting category. And I'll tell you the story about that process. But that really put us into, I think, the public consciousness. And so many people saw her. We had hundreds of thousands of people coming to the site looking for that one item, which we had no clue she was even going to wear. We didn't have it. Really? You did not know? No, because, you know, part of. Part of the success I think we've had is that we've constantly had celebrities and influencers and people wearing our product because they genuinely love it. Because they find it organically? They find they either they buy it at a store, they find it, and they're, they've been wearing it as their off-duty wardrobe. And I think that's been you know, part of the growth story, this this organic love that people have for our product. But really when she she wore it, we had hundreds of thousands of people coming to the site trying to find that shirt, which we didn't have. So we said, okay, let's put all of the red shirts up at the top of the <laughs> at the top of the website and just sell whatever we can. Okay, but, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I need to find out more about that moment because the Super Bowl ends pretty late, certainly on the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, when did the phone start ringing or what, what happened? Well, Were you I watching? Think you had all of the sports publications covering the Patriots and Tom Brady winning the Super Bowl. And then you had all the fashion publications covering what did Giselle wear at the Super Bowl. Okay. So we had all of those customers coming to our site to find out, okay, what is this brand Rails that she's wearing? Because the colors were really vibrant. It was this bright red and blue check plaid that 
people hadn't seen. And, it, and our fabric that we make is is very like elegant and drapey. We use this Tencel rayon fabric mm, that has which I love. almost so like cozy. a silk quality to mm-hmm. it. So it looked like something special. And um, obviously Giselle made it look amazing. So that always helps. Um, and so that was, you know, one of many little moments along the way of the journey of, of rails that have helped step-by-step build the brand. And it is certainly a journey that I want our listeners to hear specifically because that's why they tune in. They love to hear what it took to build something like this. And it's particularly interesting considering when you launched it. I mean, 2015 was when Giselle rocked that shirt uh, and it attracted loads of attention. But you started back in 2008. Um, I'm not celebrity-focused. Believe me, I'm from L.A. I could care less. Mm. But who was the first celeb to rock the rails? Well, the early days, you know, jumping back, it took me a number of years to even figure out how do I put a brand together? How do I even make product? Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, I was making hats and t-shirts and hoodies and trying to connect to whoever I knew who had some connection to a celebrity or an influencer at that time. So I had a picture of Jessica Alba, who mm-hmm. I had passed a hat through like three different people and she happened to wear it. Um, you know, just on her daily outing, got paparazzi pictures of that. Um, and then I eventually, I got into a store, Fred Siegel, which is a great store in Los Angeles. So she, you know, and this was after a long road trip around the U S walking into stores unannounced, just trying to get people to pay attention to what I was doing. And, you know, ultimately Fred Siegel said, okay, we'll give you a test on consignment. Um, for some hats and some hoodies. And it Did just you so- send all your friends in to buy? Well, <laughs> I would have I, I would have done that. I won't deny that I've encouraged people to go and uh, you know, <laughs> shop places where we have the product. Mom, are you busy this afternoon? But go what, to Melrose. What happened was Matthew McConaughey went into the store because it's, you know, this really sort of trend-driven store and we had a hoodie there that was super soft fabric. And he loved it, and he bought like 10 of them for his friends for the holiday. And so the store called me and they said, Matthew McConaughey just came in and bought all the hoodies. We need more. And then I said, okay, I'm going to pay attention to see if, you know, his picture comes up. And a couple weeks later, it came up that Matthew McConaughey picture with our hoodie. So I started accruing just little bites here and there. But, you know, the first three, four years of the business were really trying to figure out how do things even work. Well, that's where I want to take you to even before that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our viewers should know you are a proud graduate of UC Berkeley, my alma mater as well. I am. Um, Go Oski. Cal does not have a fashion program. I know this. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you were not majoring in that, but they do have an arts and design school. Were you studying Anything that could be remotely confused with fashion? No, you know, I was I studied political science. I think like a lot of people going to university, trying to figure out what is your future path going to look like. I was, oh, maybe I'll be an attorney. I'll do something in the professional world. But I had grown up doing a lot of art. I liked painting and photography and sculpture. And I just like cared about cultural and things like, you know, more in that creative space. So fashion seemed like a way for me to combine a lot of the interests that I had. I had no technical background in fashion. Nobody in my family was in this business. So when I entered, I sort of entered blindly. You know, I'd saved up a little money. I had $5,000 and I said, okay, where, how do I even start? And I had, I bought a hat and I made one little hoodie and it was just a sort of like testing phase, you know? And I had actually during college lived in um, Europe for a semester and I was traveling around on the Euro rail. And this is where I got the name rails as I was seeing all these things, these cultural things I was seeing internationally that I wanted to fuse with the Southern California upbringing that I had. And so this was the original concept of the brand, but I had no clue how do I even get to that point. Um, And so, like I said, I made some samples. I went on the road. I was walking into stores unannounced. Let's talk about that. Yeah. You're schlepping. Yes. Basically alone 
-hmm. No help. What stores did you walk into? What did you say? How many said thanks? No thanks. That's not how we do business. Yeah. So first I looked up, okay, who are the who are the players in this space? Who are my competitors? And what stores are they selling at? I need to even know where I'm supposed to be going. So I made a list of all those stores. I got in my car. I drove from LA. I went to Arizona. I walked into some boutiques. I went to Texas. I drove all along the, the South, up the East Coast, back across the US. But I was just walking into these specialty boutique accounts saying, uh, oh, I'm starting a line, I have a couple of samples in my car, and just showing people what I was doing. And a lot of people were like, who, who are you walking into our store with this hat <laughs> and a hoodie? Like, we don't know who you are. But, you know, I, it was a lot of people who said no. And it's very easy for somebody to say no. But, I, you know, that really is, is built a lot of fortitude for me to just, like, keep going. And finally, I got some people to say yes. And Fred Siegel, which is a store in L.A., was one of those first people to say, like, okay, we'll take a chance on you. People need to know about Fred Siegel. They have launched many, many brands because they are very specific. Bruce Springsteen, who is quite the fashionista, he's got that rocker look to him. He shops there. Everybody who's, you know, really stylish, whether they are a name or not, goes there. So that that must have been quite the land for you. Yeah, I mean, it gave us some credibility that we were in Fred Siegel. And then, you know, I got a picture of Jessica Alba. So now what I would do is go to the stores and say, we're in Fred Siegel. Here's a picture of Jessica Alba wearing the hat. So just slowly building credibility, like little stories. How can I help, uh, you know, advance this business while in the background, I'm running around downtown Los Angeles trying to figure out where do I buy fabric? How do I make samples? How do I do all the things to run the business? We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listen Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That must have been scary to take the $5,000 you had saved and pour it into something about which you knew very little. Yeah, and you know, at the time, I had been working for a TV studio. I'd been working there for a couple years, and they had offered me a position to work in this like international distribution department. But they told me, we want you to commit to us for like two plus years to really learn the business, grow in this space. And it was really at that moment where I said, there's no great time to start a business because you're always gonna have some fear about jumping in and it's sink or swim. And I knew either I make the decision and I'm locked in in this sort of professional track, or I jump in now to what is the unknown and I put myself all into it, and whether I sink or swim, I'm going to find a way to swim. That is what crystallizes the gutsy entrepreneurs with whom we have spoken. And I will tell you, 2008, listeners, are you hearing me? That was the start of the financial crisis. So who starts a business then? Well, guess what? Some of the smartest, best, most successful businesses have been started during recessions. And this wasn't yeah. just a recession. This was the Great Recession. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's a time of, of change. And I think when people are looking for things new and, and looking for people to be innovative. And I think because I didn't have a technical background, I had no blueprint. 
for how you either make a fashion brand, how you run a business. And what I had to rely on was my intuition and I think common sense. And even still today, fusing a creative approach with a commercial sensibility. And I think that to me has been critical in building a fashion brand is like, how do you fuse those those two worlds? Okay, commercial sensibility. Uh, the, the plaid shirt has been done and done ad nauseum. You deconstructed it and then reimagined it. I mean, to me, that is really something that is I'd like to dig into and yeah. find out how, why, where, where'd you get the idea to make it that drapey sort of heavier fabric right. that is so flattering. So, you know, in the initial years I was doing, like I said, the hats and the hoodies and sort of miscellaneous assortment of items. Then I, I said, okay, I need to focus in a category that can be something I can repeat season after season, like settle in some classic you know, silhouettes or styles that I can rely on. So I started making some plaid shirts in cotton, which were nice and they had really vibrant colors, but the hand feel was a little bit more stiff. Mm -hmm. So I said, what can I do in this, in this category that will be like nothing else that's in the market? And I had at the time, like some blanket fabric. It was just this like super drapey cashmere like blanket. I'm like, Ooh, it would be amazing if I could make a shirt in this fabric. So I'm like, where can I even do that? So I found, I found these guys who were actually at a trade show. They came, I was showing at the trade show and they came to the booth and said, Hey, we make fabrics and we're a manufacturer. We're based in China. And I said, okay, I'm actually looking to do this, this fabric in the shirt. And they said, well, you can't do that. People don't make shirts in that fabric. And I said, well, that's why I want to make it. It's going to be different. So I convinced them to help me make some like sample, you know, pieces of fabric. They would do some trials all of the trials, initial ones, they came out, they were like damaged, they would rip apart. It took like a number of iterations. And then finally I settled on this on this fabric that is really what became the core of the brand today. Did you almost give up? I mean, many times along the way, you know, mm-hmm. every day there was a new battle. You know, a lot of it initially was the the rejection of people just saying like, who are you? Right. We, we're not interested in your product. Just things all the time put you at the precipice of saying, is it really worth all this investment? It's like pushing a boulder up a hill. Every day you had to wake up and say, I'm, I'm going to battle today, but I don't know ultimately where the path is, but I'm going to put all my passion and my energy into doing it. And whatever the result was, it almost didn't matter because the journey became so liberating of controlling potentially my own destiny that um, it didn't matter what the obstacles were because they, they became part of the journey. And part of that journey involved a total nightmare. The shirts are ahead, and you got a massive order. Explain what happened. So, yeah, at the time I was, um, you know, building the business, I got a big order. It was for a couple thousand shirts, which I produced in Los Angeles. Um, at the time, I was a one-man show. I was going to the factory. I was checking on the production. I was going and calling the stores. I was doing everything. This took about three months to produce the product. Got it back to my little tiny warehouse that I had. Packed and you're everything so excited. Up. I was so excited, yeah. 18-wheel truck comes to pick up the product. You packed it yourself? Yeah, I packed it, and I also didn't realize like five seconds before they were coming to pick it up that I that all these logistics requirements of like the way you have to sticker it and the way you have to tape it and the way you have to stack and I, I this was five seconds before they picked it up. You're sweating. Yeah, I was sweating. But anyways, I hand it off to this 18-wheel truck. They drive off. I'm celebrating. I go out with my family that night. We're having drinks. I get a call the next morning from the trucking company and say, sorry to inform you, but our truck was robbed right after we picked up all your goods. Uh, we don't know where anything is, um, and we'll just we'll keep you posted. Robbed? Yeah, and I said, what, what do you mean robbed? You don't know where any of the goods are? They're like, no, we we just, we don't know. We're looking into it. Like, our insurance company will come back to you. So 
you know, this was my first big order. I invested <sighs> all this time and money. I called the store and said, can I, I don't know what happened. Can I reproduce these? They said, no, it's going to be too late. <gasps> so this was a moment where I was like, okay, either I could fold right now or I could dig deeper and say, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way to like regroup and, you know, bootstrap it and reboot. And, and ultimately I got paid by the insurance company like eight months later, but they never found the goods. And that's something that very quickly could have put me out of business. Um, How did it not? Because at the time I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of overhead. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have employees. I didn't have a lot of, you know, payables that I had to attend with. So it was like, all right, just get really tight with my operations. Don't spend on things that you don't need. I was banking on that I would get paid by the insurance company because if I didn't, then that would have been a big problem. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I had to try to also just activate goodwill with the store that I had and say, like, we need another chance at some point to show you that our product can can work. And ultimately, they came back to us. But, you know, that's one of many things that come up, which just taught me that in moments of distress like that, you have to be a problem solver. And that's one of the most important things I think for any entrepreneur is you can't ruminate on the things that come up that could put you astray. You have to immediately like detach your emotional connection to the issue and go into like what, how are you going to solve this problem and put yourself in the best position for success going forward? Well, that was a big one though. That was a big rock thrown at your feet, you yeah. face planted, but you got back up. And that is the most important thing is it not that you fail, but that you get back up. You not only got back up, you have now expanded exponentially. You've launched a men's collection, a kid's line. I love the name Little Rails. Brick and mortar stores? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Where was your first? Here in New York, right? Here in New York. Yeah, we opened uh, about two years ago. Is right in the beginning of COVID. So an interesting time to go into physical retail. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. yeah. Great timing. But it's picked <laughs> up like an incredible amount of traffic. The store is doing amazingly well. And, you know, for the first 12, 13 years of the business, we really were reliant on the wholesale channel. So this was selling to specialty accounts, department stores like Saks Fifth Avenue, Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom. Um, but as the collections evolved beyond that shirt to a full lifestyle collection, which is dresses, outerwear, sweaters, we really now need spaces where we can showcase the full breadth of the collection in the world of rails. So New York was our first store in Soho, um, which is an amazing flagship. Then we have a store in San Francisco, in LA, we've opened stores in two stores in London, one in Paris, Amsterdam. We're opening a store in Berlin. So, you know, this is 15 plus years later, but it's, you know, step by step adding pieces to this world of rails. And it still feels like we're in year one because we have all of these amazing initiatives that are happening um, with our business now. The shirt. How many have you sold to date? Well, I think we we actually just calculated that we sold. I think we've sold two million <gasps> units of the of the hunter shirt specifically. But is that what it's called? The hunter. The hunter shirt is is really the iconic shirt. But you know, I started the business with five thousand dollars, and we've done probably over a billion dollars in sales to date. And for the first 13, 14 years, I never borrowed money. We never brought on investors. It was all slowly just building the brand in a very organic way. And you control it. That's yeah. the most important thing because yeah. when you bring in the investors, they start telling you how to do things they don't even know how to do. Yeah. You also created a denim line. That is one crowded field. When I think about that, there's so many high-end choices. Seven for All Mankind, Mother, Nilly Lotan, Mousy, Frame, Rag and Bone. Uh, how do you sort of separate yourself and grab attention from that high-end jeans consumer? 
Yeah. So we've always been merchandised as the top half to denim. So we've been sitting next to many of those brands mm-hmm. in retail locations. Um, but I think what we've seen is that our customer is evolving with us as we're giving her or him now the you know expanded collections. And the bottoms, the, whether it's denim or non-denim bottoms, are really completing the full outfit. So I think we've really built this emotional connection between our brand and the customer, going back to Amazing Hand Feel, and also just by the emotional DNA of what our brand is about. I think customers genuinely love what we're doing, and they're excited that we're introducing denim. And I think it's already off to an amazing start, but I think it goes back to like the customer allegiance that we have. How did the pandemic change fashion? Well, I think certainly it was a time for everyone to reevaluate, okay, one, how do you be comfortable in probably working remotely? And I think we did quite well during COVID because of this hand-feel concept of our brand. Um, I think coming out of COVID, we've, we've been able to strike the balance between having that really amazing comfort level um, but giving people things that now they can be, they can wear out that are more elevated, that as people are dressing up more and going out to events and interacting, that it strikes the balance between, you know, comfort and elegance. Um, but I think always going back to the fabric at the core is really what's made it successful during COVID. Comfort. I mean, that's what I've noticed. And uh, I mean, I can reach for something that maybe looks really sexy or something like that, but it's just not comfortable. And I think, what am I doing? Yeah. For two years, I, I did my show at home wearing a, a blazer on top and then like boxer shorts yeah. on the bottom. Uh, but a lot of concocted outfits. During, yeah, sure. Uh, during and then COVID. You, I, I mean, I, I sit there and I think about Vogue, and they, you're not going to agree with this because who knows? Maybe you've been in there, but I think they have a lot of work to do to understand the actual female consumer now. Because it is just so ridiculous, some of the stuff that's on their pages when it comes to the real world of women in the working place. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, going back to the concept of of creativity and commerciality, I think we try to target a a woman, whether it's the mother or whether it's a daughter, just who really is living her life. She's maybe a young professional. She's got things to do. She's running around. She wants to be comfortable. It'll also look amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's brands that are doing an amazing job in the luxury category or being a little bit more couture. I think we're trying to be slightly more practical in our approach um, and give something that customers want to come back to season after season. And I think it is a fine line in particularly in women's fashion where you have to reinvent yourself every three, four months, you're introducing a new collection. How do you maintain that, that DNA of your brand while giving customers something new? And I think that is really, you know, that is a challenge for a lot of entrepreneurs to build an enduring brand is how do you innovate but not lose your identity along the way? Well, I'm thinking of the great American designer, Ralph Lauren, and he went into, obviously, uh, home goods as well. Is that next for you? Or are you already thinking about that? Yeah, and actually you're you're right on on target with, with what our plans are. I mean, I think we have so much room to grow. It's just in the product apparel category in our retail expansion. A lot of customers are coming to us now on the e-com channel, but I think home goods, particularly with blankets and pillows and the decor we're now building out around the stores, um, there's a natural evolution for us in that space. Um, but I think we're trying to every year sort of introduce a new category and not give the consumer too much at one time because they need to absorb the newness and then layer in something new. 
All I can say is if I had sheets made of the shirt material, I would be so happy. All right. They're, they're coming to you soon. Okay, great, because <laughs> they're liquidy. They feel like they just hang, and they're so comfortable. Yeah. It's so great to hear your story. Yeah. The product is amazing, but your story is even better, Jeff. Thank you so much for talking to our listeners who are very motivated. They love to hear what it took to start this business. Yeah, thanks so much for having me in an end. You know, I always like telling the story because I do imagine there's a lot of young people who are thinking about starting a business and they feel like they have to have everything in the right place before they start. But the reality is nothing will ever be in its right place. And you have to be comfortable operating in that that type of, you know, unsecure environment and just go for it and put all your passion into it and you'll hopefully be successful. So you hear that, you guys? There's never a good time. Hence, it's always a good time. Take that chance. Do what Jeff did. I mean, he was working in television. He probably had this two-year opportunity to be paid really well. And he said, forget it. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to take this shot. So I hope you've been inspired by this. And I hope you're watching me Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox Biz. I, I know I told you guys this last time, but we're number one. We're number one. We're beating CNBC. And that is particularly fabulous for me because... I used to work there, and it's really nice to beat your the people that you know used to work for. Um, okay, I'm going to stop being a brat, and I will see you guys next time. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.